So the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to just go ahead and read the whole parable to you, 24 through 30, and then we'll talk about it. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain has sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them but gather the wheat into the barn. So using some of the explanations that the Lord has already given us about parables, in the parable of the sower, here we find the parable of the wheat and tares, that the sower is God or Jesus. The seed is God's word. The field is the people of this world. And the good seed represents believers, the tares representing unbelievers. I should have also put in my note that the enemy would represent Satan. And so sowing good seed in his field also reminds, well, it reminded me of creation when God said on the sixth day after creating Adam and Eve, and the Bible tells us in Genesis 1.31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Up to this point, a recap of a day's creation, it was good. It was good. But after creating humanity, God said, very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. However, the enemy, Satan, deceived Eve by his craftiness. And we learn about that in the fall of Genesis chapter 3. But those words deceived Eve by his craftiness, Paul recorded for us in 2 Corinthians 11:3, And that's when sin entered humanity. And now we have this condition of the wheat and tares growing together. Over time, both the good and the bad seed began to sprout in the human hearts. As the plants began to appear, the servants of heaven saw that both wheat and tares were growing together. And at first, They asked the master, they asked God, do you want us to go just root out the tares? And the master said, no, don't do that. Have you guys ever done this when you're weeding a garden or flower garden or a vegetable garden garden, and you have the weeds come in and you try to get the weed out, but you end up taking the plant out with it that's next to it? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It has happened to me. And here the Lord said, let them grow together. At the time of the harvest, then we will distinguish between the wheat and the tares. And it will be easy to distinguish. And they gather in the wheat into the barns and the tares will be bundled and burned. So speaking about the judgment that is coming to this whole world at the end of the age. So like the parable of the source, Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and tares later on. And we'll get back to that explanation 
But before I move on, and we're not going to look at that explanation today, we'll have to look at it next week. But before I move on, I'd like to point out a couple of things. First, the enemy of Christ and his church is Satan and those who follow him. That's why Peter warned in 1 Peter 5.8 to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And Peter warned also in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring themselves swift destruction, verse 2, 2 Peter 2, 2. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So we have the enemy of Christ and his church is that of Satan and those who follow him. And they are infiltrating the church, bringing in false prophets and false teachers, teaching things that are not found in the Bible. And yet teaching them as truth. Second, the master instructed the servants to allow the wheat and the tares to grow together because at the time of the harvest, they would be distinguished, the believers between the believers and the unbelievers. And this is a great example of the church where both believers and unbelievers often come and worship together. They serve alongside one another. And it's through serving together that many unbelievers come to faith in Jesus Christ. And at times, it can be difficult to determine who's actually a believer versus who's actually an unbeliever. Sometimes it's easy, but sometimes it's hard. And vice versa, whether you're a believer trying to determine a believer to an unbeliever or a believer, an unbeliever to that of a believer, God, when he judges all the earth, he will distinguish between the two. For us, we are to serve. We're to serve in such a way that we would be lights, as we'll see in our next point, to those who do not believe. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it tells us, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, and each one's praise will come from God. So when the judgment comes, God will take care of these things. For us, it is our duty to continue to serve the Lord. And as wheat among the tares, may we faithfully serve Jesus until the coming harvest. In fact, the Lord said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So our responsibility is to serve the Lord. The next parable we look at is going to be in, we're going to take it from Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. And it's that of the parable of the lampstand. I'll read the context of the parable. Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, and anything hidden, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to the light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken away from him. 
How interesting. Even what he seems to have. There are those in the world that they seem to have quite a bit. They have a lot of worldly riches. They have uh, the fanciest cars. They have the largest mansions. Well, at the same time, they're trying to tell us that we shouldn't be driving cars, flying in private jets, which we never do, but they do. And then they try to tell us that you guys actually need to be living in a smaller confined space. They seem to have a lot, but in reality, they have nothing if they don't have Christ. So the parable itself in verse 16 When a lamp is lit, no one puts it under a vessel, a bucket, a bowl. Wouldn't want to put it under a bed. You'd catch the bed on fire. You'd set it on a lampstand that when people come into a room, they can see. You want to have the best location for the lamp that others can see. It's to illuminate the world, the room for the people. And speaking of the light of Jesus, he comes to each of us by putting our faith in him, and yet his light is not for our own personal use. We're not to contain the light of Jesus uh, within our hearts that nobody can see it. The light is there that we are to shed the light of Jesus upon others that they might see the light and also come to faith in our Savior. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. And a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we are that lampstand. We have that light of Jesus Christ, and we are to let it shine before others. And today, it seems that many are trying to attempt to hide the light of Jesus Christ in their life, that others maybe at the workplace, maybe in school, uh, maybe in life in general, a family gatherings going to be happening this week with Thanksgiving coming up, that we kind of squelch that light because we don't want to offend or we just don't want to get in the argument. But we're to let the light shine. But also, in Jesus' day, they used oil lamps, which had to be replenished to keep their lamps burning. And it's a great example for us as well that we need the replenishing of the Word of God, the replenishing of the oil of His Spirit, enabling us to become lights of Jesus' love to others around us. Jesus also said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the light of the world. And we need to let Jesus Christ, his light shine into our hearts that we then, uh, as a lampstand, allow it to shine out to others. And then Jesus says in Luke eight seventeen, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to the light. So though Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, he says, you are the light of the world. In reality, he is the true light that gives light to every man coming into this world. That's what John 
1.9 tells us that Jesus is the true light which gives light to every man coming into this world. And in his light, there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor anything kept secret, but it should all come to the light. Mark 4.22, nothing hidden. So that thought is both frightening and awesome to contemplate. We already read this verse from 1 Corinthians 4, 5, but it's a great reminder. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to the light the hidden things of darkness, reveal the counsel of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. It is not our duty necessarily to go around judging others, but we are to be the light of Jesus Christ, to allow the truth of Jesus Christ to shine forth from us, to speak truth to others with the hope that they might be saved. But the warning in verse 18, Luke 8:18, 8, therefore take heed of how you hear, for whoever has to him will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, it will be taken from him. So how you hear. This is, you know, Jesus had a common saying that we say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He said that to the churches in the book of Revelation, but we find that similar phrase, maybe worded slightly differently in the Gospels. Those who have hear, let them, ears, let them hear. And it's really admonishing us to hear with spiritual understanding reminding us that Jesus' judgment is coming. And he gives us two options to either come to the light in this present age, to hear the truth of God, allow Jesus to expel the darkness in our hearts, to actually expand that in our hearts that um, he'll bring to light, he'll bring to light the counsel of our heart. But that we will have more given to us. We'll have more understanding, not less. But also the other side of that, those who do not have, though they seem, they think they have it. They think they understand. But apart from Christ, they cannot. But those things will be determined on judgment day. So we are, until that time, to let the light of Jesus Christ shine not only upon us, but through us to others. It's the hope that we can help others come to faith in Jesus Christ, to point them to Jesus. I heard, I think I read this morning that of this new generation of kids that are growing up in their 20s and 30s now, that only 2% are... uh, actually believers in Jesus Christ, living for Christ, 2% of the next generation. Imagine if that continues. If God doesn't come in and save a lost generation, then the United States has no hope. We'll continue to slide quickly downhill. In fact, survey also mentioned that uh, boys and girls today It can be girls and girls and boys and boys, but that they are um, just living together. They're choosing, we'll live together instead of marriage. Years ago, and I wish I could find it, I tried to search for it online. I know I pulled it out of the magazine I read it from, 
And this is going back to the 1990s. And the title of the article, I never forgot, it was called The Nordic Track. And it was in World Magazine. Maybe you can search it up. I couldn't find it. But it was called The Nordic Track. And it was talking about Norway, who introduced, legitimized gay marriage. And they said after 10 years of legitimizing gay marriage, that regular marriage kind of was starting to disappear. That kids just did not get married anymore. So it was this adding to, and then it stripped away marriage. It's happening here in the United States right now. We're on that Nordic track. We're following them. Marriage isn't important anymore. But they also said neither did gays get married anymore either. After 10 years, they had like a bunch of people, gays and lesbians, getting married at the beginning. But by the end of 10 years, they didn't even worry about marriage anymore. We want marriage rights. We're going to talk about that and we get to the end of the message because I got a couple of quotes about what happened this week in our Senate in the United States. And we'll come back to that. But we're on that Nordic track and we're tracking right with them. So the parable of the growing seed in Mark 4, 26 through 29. I said I was going to teach you something new. It's called expositional consistency. Now, this is, just isn't in, script, in parables only, but in Scripture altogether. Expositional consistency teaches that there is unity in the Bible by virtue of the ultimate author, God. And so this means that once a theme is introduced, often that theme will have the same understanding throughout Scripture. It's not 100% fail-proof, but it is in the 99% percentile on that. So once a theme is introduced, often that meaning will be consistent throughout the Bible. And this is good to keep in mind as we study the parables of Jesus, because Jesus in explaining the parable of the sower, he revealed that the characters of the parable can stand for spiritual things. And thus last week we learned in the parable of the sower that the sower was God, that the seed was his word, the birds represented Satan, and the four different soil types represented the hearers of the word of God. And, and I didn't make that up. Jesus explained this parable for us. He's the one who said these things. And so here we find in the parable of the growing seed, keep in mind, there's expositional consistency teaches that the sower is God and the seed is his word. Let's read the parable from Mark's gospel. Let me get there. Chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. We'll get the context. Here it is. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by the day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after the full grain in the head. But immediately the grain ripens, immediately, and I said immediately too soon. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And so the kingdom of God is like a man who should 
scatter seed on the ground, verse 26. And so expositional consistency teaches us that the sower is God, that the ground is the world and the seed is God's word. And clearly, God having created all things, God knows how the seeds grow. In his parable, the farmer didn't understand how a seed went from grain in the ground sprouting uh, all the way through the growing price process. But so the farmer, as he sleeps and gets up and goes about his daily life, the seed is growing. It's producing a life of his own. And so the earth yielding forth its crop by itself, first comes the blade, verse 28, then the head of the full grain. And then when that happens, when the harvest comes, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this Greek word immediately, it says by itself, uh, the growing, not immediately, but the crop itself is growing automatically without human help. It'll do it on its own. Now, that season has ended for us here in northern Illinois, and it ended in a hard way. Just two weeks ago, we had flowers still budding and blooming in front of our church. They even made it through last Sunday, but by Monday morning, those flowers looked a lot different, and they still do because I didn't get rid of them yet. But when the seed is fully grown, the sower then becomes the harvester. In Isaiah 61:11, it says, For the earth brings forth its bud, and the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. So the Lord God will call, cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. God is working in this world. Through believers and unbelievers, we find that the testimony of God through sometimes unbelievers, but more likely it should be from believers, that God's light continues to shine, that the seed continues to sprout forth, that there continues to be fruitfulness. And much in the same way, there is this mystery about the word of God, how it produces fruit in our lives, that how one thing that a preacher might say, how one verse of a song that we might be singing in worship that penetrates our heart, how one person might say something to a friend or an acquaintance and what they say drives into their heart the spirit of truth that they cannot deny that God is speaking to them. And sometimes they attempt to try to deny it and they're miserable for it. But once the word is planted in our hearts and it begins to take root, it begins to grow first the blade and then the head and then afterwards the full grain. It reminds us that God takes time to work in our lives to produce the fruit. It speaks about that time that God takes in Philippians 1, 6, saying that he who began a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to see his work through in our lives. But concerning the harvest, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is truly plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you pray that prayer? Pray the Lord of the harvest. Father, send out laborers into your harvest. He said, Jesus said, the harvest is truly plentiful. It's there. 
Are we praying that the Lord would send a harvest, the harvesters into the harvest field? Often, if you begin to pray that prayer, you may discover that he'll send you. Ultimately, the harvest of the last days, when God will judge the hearts of all humanity, whether good or evil, whether believer or unbelievers. And are you ready for that coming judgment? And truly, the time of the Lord's harvest is nearer now than when we first believed. In the parable of the mustard seed, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4. You should have your Bibles opened right there. Verses 30 through 32. Again, I'll pick up the context for us. The parable of the mustard seed. And he said, what shall we like in the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is grown on the ground is smaller than all seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up. It becomes greater than all the herbs, shooting out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So Jesus is not comparing the mustard seed to all other seeds in the world. What he's doing here in this parable is talking about the known seeds in the first century uh, Israel, where Jesus was teaching. They understood that the mustard seed was a very small seed, smaller than all the other seeds that they sown. But also the black mustard seed that is known for that area in Israel could grow some 10 to 12 feet in height. I pulled this, not a theological website whatsoever. Spiceography is the name of the website. So if you want to know about spices, spiceography. But they tied it back to Luke's gospel. We're looking at it from Mark's gospel. The mustard seed referenced in the book of Luke in the Bible is believed to be the black mustard. The black mustard plant can grow over 10 feet in height, which makes it relevant to the passage in Luke, saying it grew and became a great tree. In contrast, neither the yellow or white mustard plants are known to grow more than two feet tall. So big difference between a black mustard seed and a white or yellow mustard seed. Now, some say that this parable, Jesus talks about an abnormal growth of the mustard seed. Pastor Chuck, of the founder of Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, the Calvary Chapel movement, the founder of the movement itself, he said this, that it is an abnormal growth that grows up and the birds comes into its branches. But Lily and I learned this week that, and this year, I mean, um, in the spring, that birds will nest anywhere. And it seems like that we only just put out a couple of hanging baskets in the spring this year. And before we knew it, there was a little sparrow made a nest in the middle of that basket, laid eggs, had to be careful how I watered it. And uh, the eggs hatched, and quickly, it seems, suddenly the little birds were gone. But we watched the process. Lily complained the whole time, like they messed up my basket because they put a nest right in the middle of it so it didn't grow like it was supposed to. But I was the one who watered, and I was the one watching. 
I was the one having mama squawk at me all the time every time I got near the nest. So I can see that a plant that's 10 to 12 feet high, I mean, this was in my reach, that birds could nest there. So there's a couple of other interpretations of this passage, that of the mustard seed. First, the church, God's kingdom, though it began very small, will continue to grow until it covers the whole earth and all the earth believes. That's how some teach. They keep working. The church is going to continue to grow until all believes. I have a hard time believing that because it doesn't seem like our world is getting closer to Christ, but further away. The second interpretation is that of Satan stands in active opposition against the church, sometimes operating from within. So God's kingdom, beginning very small, which it did as a mustard seed, but notice that the birds come in. So expositional consistency. The birds represent who? Satan. Satan. So the birds come in. Satan comes in. In fact, Mark 4, 4, Mark 4, 15, Jesus talks about the birds and he names them as Satan nesting under its shade. We have many examples of Satan's activity in the early church and it will take us into our fifth point, but I want to uh, move on from here. In the fifth point, we're going to look at some of Satan's activity in the church. But truly, believers can come under the protection of the Lord's church, the shelter of the Lord's church that he has provided for us. But also, unbelievers get into the church, get active in the church, and cause the church to turn away from the truth of God's word. We have in the church both unbelievers and believers worshiping side by side. Now that should be. But the purpose of unbelievers worshiping alongside believers is that the unbelievers would get saved, come to know Jesus Christ, begin to walk in true faith. Not that the unbelievers would change the hearts of the believers. This week in our nation... One of the denominational churches in our nation has ordained a gay bishop. That's where we have believers and unbelievers worshiping alongside in the Lord's church where the unbelievers are swaying the hearts of the believers. And one, they just cause the believers to run away from the church. It's like, okay, I'm done with this church. Sometimes they go nowhere else. Sometimes they find another place to worship. But we want unbelievers in our midst, with the, in our midst, the hope that they might be saved. For Romans 10:13 tells us, "Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." And although small, the work of the church has kingdom consequences. We need to understand that that when we preach the word of God, when we teach the word of God, there are kingdom consequences taking place every single time. And finally, the fifth parable that we're looking at today, the parable of the leaven. We're going to take it from Matthew's gospel, chapter 13. I'm going to get over there. I got three locations that we're looking at. I only have two bookmarks. I should have had him put one more in there when he did it for me. Could have had 50. Man, would I look spiritual then. Look at all those bookmarks he has. (laughs) 
So this is a one verse. Parable of the leaven, Matthew 13, 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid it in three measures of mill till it was all leavened. So some people make a lot of, uh, try to take and put a lot of significance on the three measures of mill. Um, and I read some of those arguments and it didn't seem logical. It, like they didn't come to a concluding argument. So I didn't really mess with that. It could be truth there that we're just not seeing. But one of the things we learned last week is that parables, even a one verse parable like this, Jesus is usually trying to get one main point across. Last week I said to break it down too much may cloud the understanding of the parable itself. And so here, I think that one thing that the Lord is talking about is the leaven. He's concentrating on the leaven. And we know the leavening process of dough. It is a leaven is an influence that affects gradual change. And some teach in this parable that it concerns the slow growth of the church itself. But leaven in the Bible, expositional consistency is more often than not viewed as a type of evil or sin. The first mention of leaven is in the Bible. It's in Exodus chapter 12, right before the 10th plague, God introduced to Israel the instructions for the very first Passover, where they were to have not only Passover, but the Feast of Passover, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed that where the Lord said in Exodus 12:15, on the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses for whatever you eat, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from evil. So in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven is bad. Leaven can cost you your life. When the Bible translate that person shall be cut off, they shall be put out, excommunicated, put to death sometimes. Then the priest in the worshiper's handbook of the book of Leviticus, we learned this, that in the grain offering, so we looked at the various offerings when we went recently this year through the book of Leviticus, and that of the grain offering in Leviticus 2.11, it says, no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. So leaven and here honey, a lot of times honey is seen in the good sense, but here it's not. Why? Because both leaven and honey can have a corrupting uh, change. It can cause corrupting influence in something. So when condemning Israel's worship leaders in the last days, in the book of Amos, God mockingly said through the prophet Amos, now listen to this closely. God is mocking the people for their false worship here. Amos 1, verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings for this you love. You children of Israel, says the Lord God. So God in this, he is mocking them. 
He tells them to bring their grain offering with leaven. And in the worshiper's handbook, in the book of Leviticus, you were to never bring a grain offering with leaven. That's what the pagan religions did. And that's where Israel was at the time of Amos. They were worshiping the gods of the land that God had given them to occupy instead of worshiping the true God who had redeemed them and saved them. But Israel was a very religious people. They were bringing their sacrifices every morning. They were bringing in their tithes every three days. They were offering thanksgiving and free will offerings, but they were no longer worshiping the God who had redeemed them. But they were worshiping the gods of the people of the land that Yahweh had given to them. Well, in the New Testament, leaven stands for false doctrine. In Matthew 16, verses 6 and 12. Worldliness in Mark 8, verse 15. Hypocrisy in Luke 21, verse 1. Apathy over sin in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And apostasy in Galatians 5, 9. For you note takers, I'll repeat that. In the New Testament, leaven stands for false doctrine. In Matthew 16, 6 and 12, worldliness, Mark 8, 15, hypocrisy, Luke 21, 1, apathy over sin, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, apostasy, Galatians 5, 9. Also in the early church, we have Satan's activity seen plainly like entering into Judas in John 13, 27, asking to sift Peter like wheat in Luke 22, 31, filling the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to God in Acts 5, 3, poisoning a sorcerer named Simon with bitterness and binding him with iniquity, Acts 8, 23, and Paul warned the church of Corinth of the false prophets, the deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11:13. And John warned the church to test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets, he said, have gone into the world, 1 John 4, 1. And finally, Jesus, five of the seven churches that he addresses in the book of Revelation, he caused them, caused them to repent because they had fallen away from the truth. Today, we continue to see ta- Satan's attack against the Lord's church. For example, after the 15 days to slow the spread, do you remember that? I believe it was on a Tuesday. I was just blown away by the announcement. Both federal and state governments attempted to close or to restrict church attendance. And they did this right before Easter. When does the church gather together the most? Christmas, Easter. Let's see if we can shut them down on Easter. And they did. Both federal and many state governments attempted to close or restrict church attendance by deeming churches as non-essential. Yet at the same time, they allowed big box and home improvement stores to remain open, liquor stores, pot dispensaries, and strip clubs 
got to stay open. They were deemed essential while churches were deemed non-essential. One pastor in California who had between two and three million dollars in fines against him in San Diego County against him and his church. After they said strip clubs could be open that Sunday morning, he stood in front of his congregation because they didn't close. That's why he had almost $3 million worth of fines against their church. He took his tie off. He said, now we're a strip club, so let's worship. (laughs) You got to make the law work for you sometimes. I'm glad he stopped at the tie. (laughs) So another attack happened this last Wednesday, November 16th, when 12 Republicans joined the Democrats in the Senate to pass the bipartisan, they love to use that word bipartisan. There could be one Republican and all the Democrats, but you get that one Republican, it's bipartisan. Is it really? But, okay. The so-called Respect for Marriage Act, establishing same-sex marriage into federal law. That's what they're after. So in response to this, Respect for Marriage Act, both the House and the Senate. Ken Ham, the founder of Answers in Genesis, put Congress members on notice telling them that you did not create marriage, nor do you have a right to redefine marriage. Franklin Graham added to this saying that the bill strikes a blow to religious freedom for individuals and ministry and is really the destruction of Marriage Act. And sadly, it's not only Congress that has disregarded the holy design of God for marriage, as David Fiorazzo reported this week. Some churches are also reinterpreting Scripture to justify same-sex marriage. Anyone can say that they are Christians, and millions do, quoting David. But it is apparent they do not really follow Jesus and live out their faith according to the Bible. They are man-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. So Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He says, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I got it out. And Lord, help us to discern between the worldly leaven and the unleavened bread of Christ. So after the religious rulers had rejected Jesus, they were seeking for ways by which they may eliminate him, by which they may put him to death. That's what they wanted. Jesus, at that time, began to speak to the multitudes in parables. So that was the transition point. He had been rejected by the religious rulers, and they went out to see by what way they might destroy him, that's when he began to speak in parables. With the parables, Jesus told his disciples that you will continue to learn the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But through the parables, those who are not believers 
They will not get it. They will not understand. Last week, we saw the importance of having the seed of God's word planted in the good and noble soil of our hearts, that with time and growth, there will be much fruit, some 60, some 80, some 100 fold. But also to keep us from falling into that shallow, shallow soil, the thorny soil, to keep fruitfulness from being choked out in our lives. Today we learn that the parable of the wheat and tares, that both believers and unbelievers worship side by side together in the Lord's church. And by doing so, there is hope that the believers will be strengthened in their faith at the same time unbelievers can come to faith in Jesus Christ. In the parable of the lampstand, we learn that we are to let our lights shine that all may see the truth and the love of Jesus Christ shining forth from us. In the parable of the growing seed, we talked about the harvest of the last days when God will judge the hearts of all humanity, whether good or evil, whether believers or unbelievers. In the parable of the mustard seed, we saw that Satan stands in active opposition against the church, sometimes operating within the churches of Jesus Christ. But in those churches, we find both true and unbelievers worshiping side by side. And finally, we just looked at the parable of the leaven where Jesus warned against the unnatural growth within his church where leaven stands for false doctrine, worldliness, hypocrisy, apathy over sin, and apostasy. And it's only by God's grace. It is only by God's grace that we will be able to discern worldly leaven and the unleavened bread of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we close out in a song of worship. Having looked at these five parables today, Lord, there are much truths for us to learn. We also see, Lord, that in our world, the way of faith is becoming much like Israel in the days of Amos, where there may still be many churches in our land and many people gathering into those churches, but in many of our churches in the United States and parts of the world today, the truth of your gospel is no longer taught. The leaven of the world is there. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be the unleaven of Christ, that you would help us, Lord, to hear with understanding, that you would help us to be, Lord, lights reflecting the light of your glory to others that we lord would grow and continue to grow in our faith that we lord would help others to come to faith in jesus christ that is our desire we pray in the name of jesus amen, amen. pastor kevin is down front you can stand as we close out in the last song of worship if you do have a prayer need kevin is here for those prayer needs that you may have we also have the prayer benches up front that you can come and just kneel and pray uh, get ready. I had a pastor email me yesterday. He talked about this Defensive Marriage Act. We were warned that it was coming, that it could be voted on. Uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. We got this email to the churches saying this could come before the Senate this very night. So contact your senators. So this pastor sent out emails to his church body to uh, contact their senators. 
say vote no on this. Well, here in Illinois, we have very blue, dark blue. We know the way they would vote, but he received emails back from two people who were on his email list in his church, and they said, you shouldn't talk about politics in church. Keep it to yourself. I think the problem is, is the church has been silent too long, and that's where we're at right now. We need to no longer keep it to ourselves. We need to speak loudly and go down proclaiming praise to Jesus Christ, even when it costs. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always, always shine upon you in peace. God bless you guys.